Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you very much for tuning in as ever. And as ever, we have got a lot to cram in together. What I'm going to do, if it's okay with you, is reflect on what I think is the most significant trend, if that's the right word, development in British politics as Parliament goes into recess and there is a slight lull over the kind of recess period of August, uh, just where we are at this junction. Uh, Then we've got a great range of questions from some of you, not all of you, or else we'll be here all night. Um, And I'll be uh, reflecting on some of those questions. And then I'm going to tell you about the podcast over August. I'm going to do something different. It's still going to run, uh, but I'm going to do something uh, different over August while you are chilling or cooking bread or walking up a mountain. Uh, You will still have something to listen to, but it will be on a theme. And I'll tell you about that um, at the end of the podcast. So let's, without further ado, get going. I think what's really interesting, and these thoughts have been triggered more by reading a couple of um, uh, Tory columnists than any quote from a politician, although there is a quote from a politician which I'm going to reflect on in this um, context. And here's an example of what I mean. It was from uh, Robert Colville, who wrote writes in the Sunday Times. Uh, now, Robert Colville contributed to and helped write the Conservative Manifesto in 2019. He's absolutely part of this new ruling establishment. He's involved in one of the uh, centre-right think tanks. Well, he runs one. Uh, he's a very nice guy and absolutely rooted on the right and he wrote he concluded his column uh, in the Sunday Times uh, this weekend with this reflection on what he regards as the new interventionism statism almost of this conservative government he writes it was Ronald Reagan who said that the most terrifying words in the English language were I'm from the government and I'm here to help. But one of the more striking aspects of the great transmogrification of conservatism in recent years is that this strain of healthy scepticism appears on the verge of extinction, extinction, sorry, replaced by a conviction that the government that governs best governs most. Now that is um, a view that was also reflected by Fraser Nelson, the editor of The Spectator, in a column in the Daily Telegraph uh, last week, where he said, you know, what is this government? Is it the government that is fiscally conservative, uh, you know, uh, keeping a tight rein on public spending, looking for taxes to cut rather than to raise? And he was critical of a piece by William Hague earlier in the week, Uh, which said that this era did call for a greater degree of interventionism, uh, which was interesting coming from William Hague because as a Tory leader and before that, he was rooted on the Thatcherite wing of his party in terms of economics and uh, Euroscepticism and the role of the state and so on. 
Um, and in these various columns, we have reached a fascinating point in the Conservative Party because these columnists on the right detect a significant statism which is there in some of the language the government uses or specifically Boris Johnson we've talked about it before on the podcast from you know comparing himself to Roosevelt and you know the Rooseveltian New Deal uh, to various people who have worked with Johnson saying that he's basically a Keynesian he likes building things spending money to the evidence of that to some degree uh, in uh, the tensions between the Treasury and number 10 about where to spend how to find the money to reports that the Treasury Sunak uh, is concerned that sort of Johnson makes announcements with big spending implications without working out where the spending's going to come from so yeah on one level there is this significant shift of tone which worries these Tory columnists brought up on Thatcherism and then the uh, attempt largely successful in its terms to what Oliver Letwin called reheat th Thatcherism under Cameron and Osborne and with Thatcher uh, in the 80s, of course, all the language about what was about what the state couldn't do, why it shouldn't do it, why this was a form of freedom, in inverted commas, because the state was seen as being on people's backs, and if you remove the state, people would be freed from its burdens and demands and inefficiencies. And any attempt to challenge that ideology in the 80s, which of course, as Robert Colville suggests, was prominent in the United States under Reagan too, where government was seen as a problem, uh, where your heart sinks, where the government knocks on the door and says, what can I do for you? You kind of run a mile. Uh, I mentioned on an earlier podcast that Roy Hattersley as deputy leader to Labour challenged this uh, in the 1980s with a very good book called Choose Freedom which was his attempt to reclaim freedom for the Labour Party it got nowhere again I think on these co uh, uh, podcasts if not elsewhere I've looked at some of Neil Kinnock's speeches the best of which were again an attempt to reclaim terms like freedom uh, and the benevolent role of government rather than it being always seen as a burden he he made some uh, that famous speech about why he Kinnock was the first Kinnock in a thousand generations of Kinnocks during the 87 election uh, to have gone to university and all the rest of it the one that Biden lifted um, as a defense of government as an agency of liberation not of suppression but it never got a look in in the 80s and then Cameron and Osborne uh, did something quite clever politically uh, when it came to their sort of leadership and into their first term in government uh, because they pursued Thatcherite economic policies with a greater relish well relish is the wrong word with a greater intensity and passion uh, than Thatcher did. 
Thatcher didn't cut spending in real terms. It became, in effect, a real terms cut because she didn't meet the demand, uh, the growing demand in the NHS, uh, for example, or the growing demands for different forms of transport as roads got nightmarishly congested. Um, and all the other things, or the demand for affordable housing once she had given away most of the uh, council houses to the private sector. Uh, she didn't do any of that, but she didn't do real-term spending cuts, uh, which Cameron and Osborne did uh, when they came in in 2010, in a way that even those who supported it at the time, like the Financial Times, have now acknowledged was the wrong policy. Um, but they reheated Thatcherism. So these columnists of the right have been brought up on a fiscal conservatism that for them is a form of political paradise. Uh, the state on the whole bad, public spending bad, tax cuts good, uh, regulation bad, a loosening of regulation good, frees up enterprise, uh, liberates people to make wealth, uh, and so on. And they feel challenged by the modern Conservative Party. Or they think they feel challenged. It's clearly written with a degree of passion that all the assumptions on which they were brought up, these Thatcherite assumptions, uh, are being challenged. By the way, the reason why Cameron and Osborne were clever in their reheating of Thatcherism is that by using terms like modernization and by being socially liberal, they managed to fool a lot of people that what they were doing was on the centre ground, in inverted commas, uh, and they had brilliant advocates in papers like The Times, Danny Finkelstein, whose tone is so uh, moderate and engaged and witty and intelligent, uh, arguing that um, Cameron and Osborne were moderate and centrists when they weren't. I mean, you know, I've talk to him about it you can put the case for what they were doing but don't pretend it's on the center ground but a lot of people fell for it the BBC did the Times editor uh, at the time James Harding became head of news and current affairs at the BBC he was close to Osborne and some of the others in that project and bought the idea that this was centrist and moderate in inverted commas at the time that permeated into the BBC um, who regarded the political spectrum in that era as going from Blairite to Cameroonian. That was the kind of range that was regarded as acceptable, which is why quite a lot of their editors and senior correspondents struggled with Corbynism and the sort of Brexit project from the right. But now, suddenly you have Robert Colvin and others wondering whether that Reagan-Thatcherite set of assumptions that has so shaped the Conservative Party, and because it tends to win most elections, at least in England, has so shaped Britain, uh, is now in retreat. And it is a bit. Uh, the pandemic clearly has led to interventionism on an epic scale, but that is exceptional. It's led to interventionism all over the place, uh, around uh, the globe, as much as some governments can do so. Um, but that is obviously a one-off. 
Is it wider than that? Well, not really in practice. When Boris Johnson made his levelling up speech, and levelling up is a term which absolutely implies new forms of statism, it was famously empty of any new policy examples. Why was it empty of policy examples? Partly because he can't get any money out of the Treasury. And Johnson himself is torn. Yes, he is uh, uh, someone who likes to announce big projects. However, he doesn't like tax rises. He himself is, to some extent, wary of the state. We know this because he commissioned Henry Dimbleby uh, to do his project on healthier food and lifestyle, you know, from the self-centered starting point of when he got COVID. It was partly because he got it so badly, because he was overweight. And then Henry Dimbleby came up with a report which implied using taxes to deter people from taking stuff stuff full of sugar and all the rest of it. And it's clearly not going to happen. And Boris Johnson made it clear he wasn't in favour of tax rises and so on. So Johnson himself is torn. They were about to excitedly announce uh, proposals to deal with elderly care two years after he announced in coming to number 10 uh, that he had a plan for elderly care. He didn't at the time, clearly, or else it would have been unveiled. Um, but now they have apparently agreed a national insurance rise to bring it about. It was then postponed the announcement because of Javid getting COVID. Um, but even now, you sense there is hesitancy about it. There is speculation that the money raised will first of all be spent partly on paying the pay increase for nurses and others in the NHS. Uh, and the indication there is that that money will not be new money uh, towards NHS spending, but part of the NHS budget as already established or via social care. So this really isn't a new era of um, Tory statism, a return to a sort of one nation conservatism where under Macmillan, Heath, Rab Butler, uh, not that Rab Butler was a prime minister, but he got close and was influential. Uh, there was a recognition uh, that government could play a benevolent role and did have the duty to intervene on um, a range of issues. They didn't always get it right, that interventionism. But I've always said that the question in 1979 uh, after the fall of uh, that tottering minority Labour administration and the start of the Thatcher government, should have been not what should the state do less, but if it got it wrong, how could it do it better? And that question was never posed, let alone addressed, and to some extent still hasn't been. Now, this uh, provides a lot of fertile terrain for a smart opposition because first of all there are clearly internal divisions uh, within the government uh, most markedly 
uh, between Rishi Sunak, self-described fiscal conservative, and number 10, but I think within Boris Johnson himself, there is an internal division. I saw a speech he gave to one of the sort of Thatcher think tank tanks where he described Thatcher as his heroine. Uh, you know, the, she would provide the future for Toryism as well as the past. You know, he, he kind of was really up for the whole thing. He says all the time he hates taxes. Uh, he's a libertarian in many respects. Uh, hence, Freedom Day, Freedom Day. And he adores at the moment uh, his new health secretary, Sajid Javid, who texted at the weekend, famously, you'll have all read it now. Um, uh, please, you know, he talked about full recovery from COVID. Please, if you haven't yet, get your jab. It's as we learn to live with rather than cower from this virus. That word cower, as you know, has caused a Twitter storm because it, well, so crass and insensitive and stupid. Uh, and yet Javid's not stupid. I don't think he's the brightest uh, health secretary in the history of that role by any means um, and not the brightest Tory politician. And there's quite a space for someone to claim that role. Um, uh but he clearly used that word cower deliberately uh, because it will impress uh, that uh, group of right-wing Tory MPs who basically have said from the beginning uh, the state should play a very limited role in regulating what we do to keep safe and instead to quote the cliche of our times we should learn to live with the virus and cower implies something pathetic and defensive uh, about those who want various regulations to protect the country from the virus um, and I say although he's not the brightest political figure I've ever come across uh, he's not so stupid not to have known what that word means and that again shows I think the ambiguity of this moment for the Tory party because he Javid is one of those who says right those who want more sort of protection from the government are cowering from the virus you know they, they don't turn to the state mate to be protected you're on your own and we will learn to live with this it's the kind of survival of the fittest thing um you know he too by instinct is a small state conservative although to give him credit at various points he has recognized that the state should intervene he was quite keen on uh, big house building projects in a previous cabinet role and again to give him credit he is pressing hard for uh, this nightmarish social care situation to be addressed although I think he's only pressing really hard to impress Johnson because he knows that's what Johnson wants to hear um, he's certainly being very careful you know everything he says you could good old uh, the Saj the Saj thinks like me the Saj um, but you can see how torn this Tory project is between Johnson's instinct and he's pretty close to being alone on this at the moment for big government at certain moments let's build a bridge as, as Dominic Cummings has observed uh, Johnson's interventionism really is about sort of grandiose projects 
to which he would then be associated, a bridge, a railway line, all the rest of it. Now, I think they are all, these capital projects are great, but it does need, if it's going to be a serious revival of One Nation Toryism, a more coherent set of ideas about the role of the state and then there will have to be one of these famous internal battles which parties sometimes have and need to make sure that that case prevails against the small state Thatcherites who as we can see from Robert Colville, Fraser Nelson, Rishi Sunak uh, and all the others that ridiculous um, wing of the uh, cabinet hailing small kind of deregulatory measures and all the rest of it um, that battle would have to be engaged I'm not sure who Johnson's allies would be or whether Johnson himself would be the advocate so it's a moment of confusion I think uh, at the top of the Conservative Party and on layers below uh, which a more coherent cons Labour Party could uh, make the most of uh, by saying, okay, rather like Thatcher did in the mid to late 70s when Jim Callaghan declared you can't spend your way out of a recession. Thatcher kind of said, exactly. That's what I've been arguing for years. And more than that, you've got to do this. You've got to be like my father in Grantham. My father ran a grocer shop and never spent more than he earned, and a country should never spend more than it earns. It was all sort of dodgy economics. But it fed into a mood at the time reflected in some respects within that Labour government uh, of the late 70s. And now you've got it again. There is a kind of reluctant recognition amongst some Conservatives, that that Thatcherite, Reaganite, Cameron, Osborne era ended actually long ago. It ended before Cameron and Osborne got to power. But they managed, as I say, to con people that they were different when actually they were breathing life into something. Certainly after 2008 and the financial crash uh, had lost its salience amongst uh, voters. But uh, Cameron and Osborne dressed it up as other things and revived it um, for some time. Now, for Labour, therefore, they need to put a coherent case which could actually unite most of a party that seems to love fighting itself more than anything else. The most revealing thing I've heard from anyone within Labour in recent years was this guy I met um, the just before the last election about a year before, uh, the IPPR, the kind of so-called centre-left think tank, put out a big report on the future of the economy and economic policies that should be adopted. It's quite radical stuff. And it was hailed by Rachel Reeves, then on the backbenches, now Labour's shadow chancellor, and hailed too by John McDonnell, then the shadow chancellor, who said, this is our beverage. Uh, this will be my guide uh, through economic policy. So here was a sort of kind of set of economic measures that binded Rachel Reeves and John McDonald. To just give one example. Anyway, one of the guys involved in the report said to me, you know the problem with Labour? Most of its divisions are over the past. 
you know, what Corbyn and McDonald were doing in the 70s on one side and then what, you know, the Blairites did in taking Britain to war in Iraq and so on. Um, and yet there is some scope for a supple leader to bring most of this lot together um, by recognising that uh, there is an agenda out there for which even some Tories are sort of muddling their way towards uh, legitimising greater intervention by government and recognising that government can play a benevolent role and not necessarily a destructive one. And so, yeah, I think that... uh, what Robert Colville and others have identified is actually a kind of space for labour. And there will, at some point, have to be a kind of well, debate, perhaps something much rougher than that, within the Conservative Party about where they stand on these issues about the role of the state. And it's a huge change. I, I was kind of writing about the role of the state in that Cameron and Osborne era. And the sort of Blairite wing of columnists, you know, Phil Collins and others, oh, God, it's all so out of date. You know, that's not where it's at. Well, it's totally where it's at now. The debate within the Tory party and between the parties is about how governments can intervene, the scale of intervention required in climate change, in uh, economic activity, in post-pandemic recovery. And everybody from William Hague to John McDonnell accepts that interventionism should be on quite a scale and necessary. They wouldn't agree on the range of policies, but the principle. And then you have the kind of Thatcherites Robert Colville, Fraser Nelson, Rishi Sunak, uh, David Cameron, George Osborne, uh, on the other wing. Um, It's an interesting moment, and let's see how the arguments develop in the autumn. One of the big themes of the autumn will be the spending review within government and the degree to which uh, Rishi Sunak puts the brakes on spending. He's becoming a more assertive, self-confident figure, having originally succumbed to the sort of Keynesian instincts of parts of number 10 when he first got the job and in his first budget put Keynesian arguments about how borrowing can lead to economic growth and all the rest of it. Um, He's now returning to his Thatcherite base and instincts. So it's going to be interesting. Watch this space. Yeah, it's going to be a big autumn. Every autumn is big, by the way, in politics, because politics is about human beings seeking to resolve differences with words, manoeuvring, rather than battles, literal battles, killing each other. So it's always interesting. Everyone says in the summer, oh, yeah, you know, everyone interested in politics, you know, us a lot and about 10 others. Um, Oh, God, the autumn's going to be interesting. This autumn's going to be so fascinating. People now say the old politics, you know, in the new Labour era was so calm. No, every summer, people in August, God, this autumn, Blair versus Brown, and oh, God, there's going to be this and this. Um, So it's always interesting. Anyway, let's now have a look at some of your 
questions. I don't think I'm going to be able to get through them all this week. Sorry about that. Uh, there'll be loads. They're all brilliant. Um, so James Buckley, our Portuguese correspondent. James sometimes sends in recipes, tells us where he is in Portugal, making us all feel jealous. Um, he addresses this kind of game we started playing with somebody else writing in with this idea. What politicians are in the wrong party? or what politicians were in the wrong party, if we're looking back a bit. We've been playing this game for a few weeks, new listeners. So you have to listen to past podcasts for other examples. Uh, anyway, James wonders about uh, Gisela Stewart. Uh, G Gisela? I think it is Gisela. Uh, uh, Stewart, uh, belonging to Labour. Yeah, well, um, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, she, she kind of was an absolute ardent Brexiteer um, but well, I don't know which other party I suppose she could have gone over to the sort of Brexity kind of Tory wing uh, but Brexit was a an issue which kind of divided people internally as well James I mean look at the number of Labour voters who back Brexit and as a result see Johnson as their hero leading them to a promised land a promised land very vaguely defined oh yeah james also mentions uh o'toole uh finlan o'toole's article in the guardian i tweeted it james actually um because the theme is one of my favorite themes he was talking about brexit and the irish protocol and the latest disingenuous twists and turns from frost old frosty yeah get me frosty um uh, and he quotes from the article, it's really worth reading, it was in Saturday's Guardian. When this problem is dissected, the message written on its heart will be, Boris Johnson is constitutionally incapable of accepting the relationship between cause and effect. And it's, it's a brilliant summary. As we've discussed on this podcast, my favourite theme in politics, because it's too often overlooked, can be summarised by the word consequences what are the consequences of previous actions which politicians then disown which johnson and old frosty is doing with the uh, protocol thank you very much for that james james says he disagrees with me about jeremy corbyn and whether corbyn's uh, anti-semitic or not we go round in circles with this one uh, colin mckay who writes in from australia hi colin from australia hope you're having a good time in the australian winter which is probably sunnier than our summer uh he he also disagrees with me on Corbyn. fair enough um but um, as I say, we can go round in circles on that particular one. I still think we wouldn't even be reflecting on it if uh, he hadn't been Jeremy Corbyn suspended from uh, the Labour Party uh, whenever it was last September, and now he's suspended from the whip. Keir Starmer's asked about it all the time. Uh, he hadn't been asked much about Jeremy Corbyn. He was getting on with sorting out the anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. He won't get credit for it now because it's all being symbolised around the Jeremy Corbyn issue. I think it was a big, big mistake to suspend him slightly different from the argument about whether or not he's anti-semitic i don't think he is some of you think he is and that one i'm afraid we could go round in circles but thank you colin for listening in australia
Uh, now, Laundry Joe writes, and he's called Laundry Joe because he listens to the podcast whilst doing his laundry. Now, there are more glamorous pursuits, um, but it, it's an interesting point which he had whilst doing his laundry, Laundry Joe. Uh, what struck me as someone who can name the shadow rail minister, that's amazing because I can't, um, but you know, he's saying how hooked he is on politics, that the opposition barely stands a chance to connect with floating disinterested voters. Um, there must be no football, no COVID news, no Harry Meghan news, no Hancock having a fling for Labour to have a chance and they have to seize it. Um, yeah, I mean, the context of Laundry Joe making this observation is he tried to keep clear of all news and Twitter. He had a two-week break, I think, from all this kind of stuff. And only a few things permeated when he got a front page or a summary of a news bulletin on a music station or something. Um, so he wonders how you can get through all of that um, as an opposition. Um yeah, it's really difficult and um, it's hard to do. And he says, if Labour don't make it into these two or three top stories, which bulletins describe as your daily briefing, then there's no impact. I'm going to do this again in uh, September and the build up to the conferences and so on, uh, Laundry Joe. I think the key for an opposition is to establish relevance relevance is a very important political word as well because political journalists and the media more widely are deeply flawed i think in their reporting of politics their understanding of politics the contextualization of seemingly events erupting from nowhere but they're bloody brilliant at sniffing out what is relevant um, and, of course, if you're an opposition party behind in the polls, having lost four elections in a row, you are struggling to be relevant. But I do think there are ways in which uh, Labour, especially with the polls narrowing at the moment, uh, could become more relevant. Uh, and at that point, when they make announcements, if they are done cleverly and the framing is right they can uh, acquire relevance that that then gets them into these bulletins and become part of the noise that inevitably includes football, what Prince Harry's up to, inevitably pandemic-related stuff. So I think there are ways. But yeah, well done for keeping out of this madness for a couple of weeks, uh, Laundry Joe. I'm too addicted. I suspect most of us lot are too addicted to do it. Um, but it's it's healthy, I think. And Vicky Chapman wonders about a range of things, but she also notes, I thought Keir Starmer seemed more re relaxed and at ease at the last Prime Minister's questions of the parliamentary session. Maybe because it was the last one, or perhaps he's just be getting better at dealing with Johnson. I think he's probably giving more thought to um, what's required at PMQs. He began uh, and got praise for that sort of forensic questioning of Johnson early on, and Johnson couldn't deal with it because he's never been subjected to forensic questioning in ways that he couldn't escape from by kind of leaving the house or leaving a meeting or waffling. Um, Johnson then found ways through that, and 
I think Kisama is beginning to realise you, you have to use more techniques than appearing to be a lawyer questioning a witness. And he's starting to do it. I think there's more that needs to be done, Vicky. But yeah, he did seem more relaxed. And being more relaxed is absolutely part of the key. There's a repertoire of techniques and tricks for Prime Minister's questions. Uh, there's still more he needs to do. Um, but I think he now knows he can't just be the lawyer challenging a pretty dodgy witness um thank you for that vicky john mayhew wonders do you think that pr with stv the single transferable vote would produce a more equitable society and encourage more people to vote uh john says i listen regularly to your podcast which i find entertaining and illuminating well thank you very much john uh as for your question maybe you're going to change your mind about the podcast my answer to that i'm afraid is no a uh, regular listeners maybe you are john um no i'm not yet a convert to electoral reform uh, to the commons though some of you are beginning to persuade me but your question highlights some of the obstacles john if you don't mind me saying so like i used to know what stv was precisely that single transferable vote i've forgotten and if i don't know millions won't know so you know say i to get into this position you'd have to have a sort of near coalition government um, so the next election hung parliament you have kind of Lib Dems, SNP and all the rest of it there will be 10,000 challenges for that government many of which we discuss each week um, uh, you know sorting out the NHS the transport the economy which is not as productive as it should be uh, the leveling up agenda which so far is empty and so on are they really going to throw into this mix uh, a debate of, well, it'd have to be a referendum on the single transferable vote? And um, would people engage with it? Remember, there was a referendum after the coalition on a uh, proportion, uh, not, it wasn't actually a proportional system, it was the alternative vote. And the turnout was really low everywhere except for where I lived. We had to queue for miles because us lot were interested. Um, so I still, John, I'm sceptical. I see it as a diversion from an agenda which would lead to a more equitable society, to quote you. Um, but do try and convert me. S some, some are beginning to make me think again, but I'm not there yet. Uh, Steve Petrie wonders about the Labour NEC decision to ban four left-wing groups. Is this part of... Uh, Keir Starmer taking on the party. I talked about what I regard as the dangers of leaders taking on their party, any leader, any party, when they're in opposition and behind in the polls. I think it's a myth that it leads to electoral success. Or was this an internal housekeeping exercise? Uh, the answer is to that, I'm not sure. Uh, we will have to see how Keir Starmer frames things Steve uh, in the autumn my hope is that given that the election and he thinks this himself could well be in 2023 um, he looks outwards and starts putting a case to the electorate as I say the the ideological framework is more conducive for him to do that than any Labour leader from, since 1979 uh, with a lot of these right-wing commentators detecting a more statist leadership of the Tory party, but they are uncomfortable with it. So there's space. Uh, I think if he takes this coming autumn to sort of 
do endless internal stuff. Uh, voters would just say, oh, they're still fighting each other. We won't go near them. Um, but, you know, so that's my view, Steve. I know lots here disagree with me on taking parties on, but that's what I think. Um, thank you, Steve. Jeff uh, Strange, I think, Jeff, you were in Dublin recently um, talking about James Joyce, amongst other things. He says he's looking forward to the rock and roll politics recipe book. Yeah, well, I could, can you imagine it? Just the, the chapters on bread making would fill half a book um, and loads of other stuff. Someone else has emailed me suggesting we should uh, I should do a recipe book. Anyway, uh, Jeff writes, I find Cummings incredibly interesting. I do as well. Uh, more interesting than uh, the caricature I had formed of him wrongly uh, when I didn't know anything much about him beyond the caricature and the stereotype of this kind of maniac. Um, and I thought the interview with Laura, this is me talking, not Jeff, uh, I thought the interview with uh, Laura Cummings uh, was disingenuous because there were endless cutaways of Laura Cummings. Uh, Laura Cummings. Laura, Laura Cummings is a brilliant writer. Uh, Laura Coombsberg um, and Dominic Cummings. They're not related. Laura Coombsberg's interview, I don't know if any many of you saw it, uh, but there were lots of cutaways of Laura looking disdainful and slightly taken aback by what Cummings was saying. And I thought that was disingenuous because... Uh, he was a revered source for Laura when he was in number 10. He's now of no great use to her, especially after she got the exclusive interview. Um, and I think the sort of disdainful looks were a kind of way of showing to number 10, who the BBC are terrified of, uh, and others that, you know, oh God, don't worry, number 10, don't worry, the director general, you know, and the uh, Tory, former Tory supporting chairman uh we're not going to give a cummings or a free ride here we're going I'm, I'm don't worry i will convey how i disdainful i feel towards this figure so anyway i thought all of that was um utterly disingenuous um but that, that that's but uh, I, and cummings of course is an interesting figure and some of that fascination still needs to be explored as i've said my theory the reason he falls out with all these Tories is he's on the centre-left. Uh, but someone brilliantly wrote in that he's actually just a sort of autocrat. But anyway, um, so uh, what's Jeff saying about it? Oh, he says, oh, we have a Ulysses figure in Cummings, who with his other buddies hidden away in the wooden horse that is vote leave and now firmly parked within the barricades of number 10. Well, not anymore. Well, they're trying to get him, trying to get rid of him the guy in number 10. Our Trojan malcontent Paris, that's Johnson, rejoices at his perceived Brexit victory as the ships of the Remainers sail away vanquished. Enter Helen Carey, who now becomes the centre of attention in Troy, distracting the Trojans. Blimey. Well, this is a kind of, yeah, lot of... Um, that that time in Dublin has got you really going. Uh, this is like reading Ulysses, for real. Um, anyway, uh, he says, Jeff, essentially his aim is to rid, get rid of politics, all politicians. This is Cummings. He's always been an iconoclast in that regard. Um, yeah, well, that kind of is this thesis that we, he certainly can't stand most politicians um, and most Tory MPs. Um, so, yeah, Ulysses. 
Thank you for that. Uh, Nick Radcliffe in Edinburgh, Politicians in the Wrong Party, this ongoing theme. His nominee for such a misfit is Kate Hoey, who surely should be in the DUP, although I admit that uh, that might have made her election in Vauxhall harder. Yeah, you can hardly see Kate Hoey storming Vauxhall as a member of the DUP. Um, he goes on to say, not only was she a vocal anti-Brexiter here, but opposes gay rights and gun control, supports fox hunting, and indeed chaired the Countryside Alliance, stricter immigration controls, tougher welfare reforms and grammar schools. She also said in 2009 she wouldn't be devastated if the Conservatives won the election. She, too, there's no question, was on what's called one of these journeys, although I don't think she I think those were always her views. Although, and this is interesting, I didn't know this, and it just shows how, again, caricatures form. And uh, Nick also adds, it's complicated. She's an ex-Marxist, nominated John McDonnell for the leadership, and voted against the Iraq war. Yeah, politics, politicians rarely entirely conform to caricature. And I think they become more interesting when they don't. And yet it's so easy in the media to sort of you know, please editors by slagging off the caricature of someone says so and so's bloody useless, someone so and so's mad, and all the rest of it. And editors think, oh, that's a brave column, whereas actually that's the easy one. Um, and Nick uh, reminds us he's another runner, bread maker, and whiskey drinker. I hope not all at the same time, Nick, especially if you're listening to the podcast, just a bit too much simultaneously. Um, and another one, Andrew Anderson, also from Edinburgh. He says, I enjoy the podcast whilst walking around the meadows in Edinburgh in glorious sunshine. I love the meadows. He asks, when are you coming up? You, you do know that a limited in-person fringe is on. Yeah, Andrew, it's, it, it won't work for me with the fringe this year, but let's hope next year the full Edinburgh Festival. And I'm going to go up for the whole month if that's possible. Um Anyway, uh, Andrew says, I was prompted to write by your reference to John Reid, you know, the old Labour cabinet minister. Uh, my friend Alan, who was for most of his life a staunch old Labour figure, had briefly paid homage to his Fife upbringing by joining the communists in the 1970s. He told the story of going to a meeting with the fearsome John Reid, who became an ultra Blairite cabinet minister. The main message of which was, if he wanted to be a tribune of the working classes, he needed to get a haircut. Reed, as you noted, became a faithful servant of Tony Blair. But I wouldn't call him a Blairite. He retained the style of the Stalinist enforcer. He could certainly be tough, uh, John Reed, but actually he never stayed in a department long enough for his toughness to be all that constructive. Um, but yeah very interesting political journey he went on uh keith from finchley keith from finchley with he didn't leave his surname it's keith from finchley if dominic cummings can't land a punch on johnson who the hell can uh the answer is that dominic cummings has landed some punches on johnson it was very interesting i did a chaired a discussion for the last week in westminster of the parliamentary term uh, with three columnists, and two of them, when analysing Johnson uh, and where he is at the moment, Fraser Nelson and George Parker of the Financial Times, both cited Cummings 
as a kind of witness to Johnson. So Com Cummings' comments are beginning to resonate. And I, I think it's quite a problem for Johnson that he has this running commentary from his chosen special advisor, who he granted unique power within number 10. Um, and so uh, I, I think it will continue to be uh, an issue for him. And I suspect, almost for certain, Johnson worries hugely about Cummings and the uh, running conference. Of course, most voters don't pay attention, but they don't pay attention to anything. And that is a huge problem with politics. Um, but I think it you know, this is, of course, he's an unreliable narrator, a damaged witness, whatever you like to call it. But he's publishing texts, emails, and conveying an image, which I think is, is having an impact on the way Johnson and his number 10 is perceived. Uh, thank you very much, Keith, from Finchley. Um, where do we go? Blimey, you know, we're nearly at 50 minutes. Um, I think what I'm going to do is let's uh, do a couple more, if that's okay. Um, let's go to um, Anyan Malik. Don't you sense from this government uh, that this government is on the verge of having its ERM uh, moment, all the goodwill benefit of doubt following the vaccination rollout is beginning to fizz out. Um, today's 27 minute will they won't they self isolate U turn is another nail. Oh, that was oh, you must have written this uh, when uh, they were trying to not self isolate briefly, Johnson and Sunak. Um, the, the thing about the ERM moment in 1992 was it was sudden self-contained in that the crisis happened over a few hours uh, and gave the impression of a prime minister and government out of control over the economy. This was John Major, recently elected triumphantly after the 92 election. And on that day, Major famously lost the support of a lot of Tory-supporting newspapers, including The Sun, uh, and other papers being very critical. And they never recovered. Uh, they were never in the lead again in the opinion polls up to the 97 election. And that hasn't happened yet. This might be a more gradual change. Certainly the polls are suggesting a narrowing. But we haven't had an ERM moment as such. I think if there is going to be a change, it will be a longer, more drawn-out sequence uh, but let's let's see. I mean, the glory of politics and the terror of politics is no one really knows, frankly, how things are going to play out. Um, it's just just the way it goes. Um, thank you for that, uh, Anyon. And uh, oh yeah, Ryan in Hearn Hill. My girlfriend Vicky and I are big fans. Oh, thank you. Your podcast and. Prime Ministers. Oh, yeah, thank you. The stuff done on Prime Ministers. And her saldo basically kept us sane during lockdown. I hope it's keeping you sane now. This is Ryan, by the way, from Hearn Hill, again, like Keith, without a surname. Uh, he mainly listens, Ryan, whilst doing the washing up. 
He wonders, will your next book be time for the next lockdown? Cases are very high and the Tories seem determined to push on. Uh, by the time your next book is out, we'll be seeing a repeat of last year with a dip in the polls for the Conservatives, but Keir Starmer better positioned to take advantage. The narrow win in Batley seems to have had a culturization effect of stopping the ongoing criticism of Starmer's leadership for now. And perhaps he might have a Southgate-like effect of being able to adapt and learn on the job after all. That's the key question, Ryan. Can leaders learn and adapt when they are at the centre of the political stage? Um, by the way, something which seems to have been missed in the analysis of the Batley by-election was the stepping down of the Green candidate, an international rugby league player after some homophobic tweets three weeks before polling day. It's very interesting what happened to bring about that Labour win in uh, that by-election. Um, no doubt some Tories turned to Labour, must have done some Lib Dems. Um, as usual, there's a whole range, range of kind of things that um, played their part. Okay, there was some fantastic question, a really interesting guide to the fractured uh, nature of um, current social care policy from uh, Aileen, which I'm very uh, grateful for. Uh, she should know because she worked at the National Audit Office. Um, and uh, the, the, the degree to which the current system is fractured is, is fascinating. Um, and thank you for that. I, I, all I've got time for now is to summarise the, the scale of the uh, fracturing that you um, highlight. Um, uh, Stephen Lamb uh, is very interesting. Stephen, by the way, did we work together at the BBC at one point? He says he was once a BBC staffer. Uh, he makes the point, if PR were adopted, do you think Labour would formally split, perhaps along the lines of the German Social Democrats and Die Linke to the, its left? Um, we tend to think that PR would remove the Conservatives' electoral advantage, but would it in fact have a splintering impact on the left and the Conservatives would still have an advantage? Good, good question. Uh, so Seaman shares my kind of sceptic um uh brad dodd has um uh, a kind of view that a sequence has taken place in labor to put it in almost terminal decline and he thinks it goes back to the delayed general election by gordon brown of virtually everything that has followed since um and yeah uh, john bigger is very interesting he he's uh uh, politics tutor and he doesn't like the he's he's an anarchist and he says there is nothing libertarian about Johnson he's an authority figure who has plans to bolster the power of the executive against both the courts and our elected representatives uh, he says you used the word anarchy in your last podcast to mean chaos and a system without rules. That's not the case. Anarchy is the idea we can function in an ordered society without rulers. Well, I have heard this kind of case, but I can't see how you do it without rulers. I'm, I, I'm afraid I support the idea of rulers and rules as a structure. The issue is who's doing the ruling and what are the rules. But, um, you know, uh, thank you for... Uh, putting the alternative view uh jenny Sieber, sorry i'm rushing through this because this is this is kind of you'll have all done 20 miles by the time we finish this running i mean not driving uh uh 
Uh, Jenny Seabird, just wonder what you thought about the government's revelation this week that indeed Boris Johnson's flat refurbishment had originally been paid for by a Tory donor. Uh, seems to have been swept under the carpet. Yeah, I know. I, I think kind of when I look at the media hysteria over things of like Cherie Blair's purchase of a flat in Bristol um, where you know a mediating agent happened to be the boyfriend of the woman who helped with her well-being or personal trainer or whatever as if I remember someone describing that as like being Watergate and and this where you have evidence of kind of rule breaking and uh, subdued it's the kind of world we're in at the moment um, but I think there is again an accumulative impact uh, on these stories but maybe I'm completely wrong about it I don't know um, uh, he he is Johnson uh, somebody who gets away with much more certainly as I say God Gordon Brown I mean they'd have destroyed him for some of this stuff uh, Noah Keat uh, has been uh, wondering oh yeah he spent a lot of time talking about the 1970 election uh, there's another question along these lines uh, where Harold Wilson lost power to Edward Heath despite this Wilson was back again in 1974 do you think we will ever have a Prime Minister like Wilson or Churchill who serves over two non-consecutive terms uh, or do you think the 24-hour news media uh, means an election defeat for a Prime Minister now makes their resignation as party leader inevitable I think it means Noah it's inevitable and same with the leader of the opposition I think they have one chance and one alone um and so you know for Keir Starmer and indeed Labour the stakes are very high uh if he loses I think the idea that he then goes again means he'll be leader of the opposition for eight or nine years and it's just too long people get fed up one of the problems Neil Kinnock had was he had just been doing it for so long and I think although they got criticised for it, William Hague and Ed Miliband were right to go when they did. And similarly for a Prime Minister who loses, I think that's it. Um, the idea that people will say, oh, let's give him another go in five years' time, we'll have him five, or her, five years as leader of the opposition, seen as a loser of an election, and then give them another chance. I think it's highly unlikely that there is such tolerance and patience as there has been in the past. Um, so yeah, well there there's a range of questions. Sorry I didn't get through them all. Um, maybe, uh, yeah, Gareth Curzon's written, Paul Cooper has written some great points and others. Um, well, there'll be more chances to return to them uh, in the coming weeks. What I'm going to do over August is, yeah, I have got a book coming out in the first week in September, The Prime Ministers We Never Had. So I thought to give us a sort of change of focus uh, during August bit like Laundry Joe, you know, kind of zoom out of the day-to-day -day stuff uh, for a bit, um, is to reflect on three themes uh, relating to Prime Ministers we never had uh, on uh, separate podcasts over August. And please do keep the questions coming in uh, on anything, but hopefully some triggered by my reflections. So the first one's going to be looking at what are the qualities of leadership required to be a prime minister and reflect on why uh, these qualities can be 
possessed by some of the prime ministers we never had, and yet they didn't make it. And some who did make it certainly didn't possess all the qualities of leadership required. It's one of the oddities about British politics that there is very little consideration of the qualities required of leadership in opposition or prime minister. You know, candidates are chosen partly for good reason, actually, because politics is about ideological values as well, but it's nearly always about their ideological position within a party at any given time. So, you know, Ed Miliband was uh, elected leader of the Labour Party partly because he positioned himself to the left of New Labour, just as the Labour Party was tiring of the New Labour era past, you know, post-Iraq, um, post the financial crash. Um, Keir Starmer knew that to win, he had to uh, ally himself to some of the ideas behind the 2019 manifesto and some of the policies that arose from it. But what are the qualities of leadership required? Why do some who possess it still fail to get to the top? That would be my first reflection. The second will be to sort of outline the criteria I've applied while reflecting on prime ministers we never had because as you know it's a kind of it's a fun thing to do and it happens quite often who are the best prime ministers we never had and it's a deeply subjective and therefore boring you know who, you know who cares who i think personally or what any of us think personally you know i remember the last time i think times radio did it with matt chorley and everybody was in there you know paddy ashdown william Hague, and all this I think there has to be strict criteria to who we judge to be prime ministers we never had, who who gets to that ambiguously flattering stroke, unflattering league table. And then in the third week, I'll reflect on some of the characters who I'm writing about in the book, because um, there is a kind of Shakespearean arc to each of these figures who got at some point in their lives apparently so close to acquiring the crown. Anyway, I'll just give you a clue. There are 10 chapters, but 11 figures. So one chapter includes two prime ministers we never had. Can you guess who they are? Anyway, uh, we'll have lots of fun and games, but as I say, keep all the emails coming in as well and do subscribe because i hope to do it roughly the same time um as i normally get the podcast out to everyone but if you subscribe it means you get it guaranteed and i love that it's like in the olden days when a newspaper arrived we just get so excited oh they, yeah let's go down and get the paper now you can do it with the podcast arriving as if by magic uh, on whatever uh instrument you use to get them so well look thank you so much for listening today uh, we've got through a lot thank you for brilliant questions and for all the kind of activities that accompany the podcast so inspiring it leads to a kind of well-being on another on another level irrespective of what the hell's happening in the world of politics so thank you for that oh yeah the book by the way you can pre-order it on all the various platforms that you know about to order or pre-order books prime ministers 
we never had. And that will tell you two of them, because two of them are in the kind of title. And I'll be reflecting on that, as I say, over August, over three podcasts. So thank you very much. Have a great week. If you're going away, have a good time. Keep listening and see you all very soon. Thank you.